Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. So thanks for coming on the show, Balaji. Good to be here. So we actually, I guess, started this conversation just before we started recording and decided to continue it while recording. So I mentioned that I was, I don't know, cautiously optimistic about the U.S. over the next few decades, not over the next decade, the next decade, I think, is going to be hard, but over the next few decades. And you asked why. So let me quickly rattle off the reasons why I am cautiously optimistic about the U.S. And let's, I guess, go into that. So the basic case, I think, for the U.S., right? Uh, well, first, obviously, the negative case, our politics are completely messed up. We have extreme polarization. Neither parties are particularly, I think, open to markets to enterprise at this point. And there is the political class is, is almost entirely wrecked. But that being said, what are the positive points? Positive points are basically almost every other region has it worse. And so Europe is a retirement community. Most of Europe is backwards looking, isn't seriously embracing the future. The demographics are terrible. The one European country I'd be relatively optimistic about is probably the UK. China is also, it's going to be the Chinese decade, not the Chinese century. China, their working age population peaked a few years ago. It's going to start, it's already in decline and it's going to start declining more severely. They're a net food and energy importer. And so while they do have all this organizational capacity and they're kind of riding high on the last few decades, I suspect that that is, I think, there's a lot of weakness underlying that. Then you have countries like Japan, which also faces severe uh, demographic challenges, South Korea as well. But the U.S. still attracts a lot of people. We have good geography. We're, we're surrounded on both coasts by two giant moats. Either of our neighbors are serious threats. Uh, we are a net food and energy exporter. We have a uh, very good kind of internal geography in terms of lots of uh, navigable waterways, in terms of the American heartland is still uh, highly productive. We still attract a lot of talent. We still have a lot of scientific and engineering talent. If I'm going to bet in the next 30 years, where are most of the major scientific and technological innovations going to come from? I would probably say the US, maybe not as high a percentage as would have come over the last 30 years, but I would still say the US is going to be number one. And so I think that's my, I guess, short case for bullishness on the US. It's definitely going to be a rough decade, 15 years, 20 years maybe, but overall, I think I'd rather ride this out in the US than almost any other place in the world. Okay. So let me go through those one by one because I... I disagree with almost all of that, as I mentioned to you offline. <laughs> conversation online. So Europe, it's interesting. I think Europe will fracture and break up. I think the, I mean, it's already breaking up with the UK breaking off from it. I look at the UK breaking off from the EU as similar to, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Eastern European satellite, the chief Eastern European satellite of the USSR broke away. And, you know, so Germany got reunited and the wall that had been separating them went away. And, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. So America has a set of Western European satellites <laughs> that we don't usually call them that. It's called, you know, NATO. Client states. Client states, exactly. And they're client states because they outsource their defense to the USA in very much the same way that Russia was the big daddy of, you know, the Warsaw Pact and of the Eastern European satellites. So they're satellite states of the USA. 
as you know, proven by, for example, who would give Snowden asylum, right? Like, you know, when push really came to shove, those NATO allies would not give Snowden asylum. That's why you had to seek it in China or Russia. And the, the thing about Europe is some of the countries are quite competent, like Estonia, Switzerland, still fairly competent. Others are not. With the UK leaving the EU, it's similar to you know the Berlin Wall thing, where the biggest Western European satellite, but you know they called Tony Blair, you know Bush's poodle, you know or something, because you know people felt the UK status in in the UK that is they felt that the UK status had been diminished, that it was just now like a the special relationship is very one sided. So now doing this thing it, with Brexit, you know whether it's well advised or ill advised or what have you, history will tell. But it's definitely charting its own course now, and Europe is becoming countries again. You saw Macron's recent declaration. He sees in U.S. weakness the fact that the U.S. is no longer a world leader. He doesn't want to just be you know, a U.S. satellite or a Chinese satellite. He wants Europe to be its own thing. Now, whether it's going to be Europe or it's going to be a return to the U.K. and France and Germany and these independent states, we will see. So Europe, I don't know. You know, I think that there's pockets of good things happening there. It is overall not something where I look for technological leadership, except for places like Estonia. But I'm actually in some ways more bullish on pieces of Europe than pieces of the U.S. because at least they've got a bunch of different governments and we'll have more as more countries leave the EU. Like Hungary is like quasi leaving and so on. So I think you get more. Number two on China. You know, yeah, I think it'll be a Chinese decade and not a Chinese century, but that's only because I think the internet will eventually beat China. I think some of these arguments that you, so the Chinese decade thing comes from Dudehead's thing. I like that. Some of these arguments here that you've made are somewhat echoing of like Zihan, like the accidental superpower. And I, I could not, like that book, there's maybe 20% of it I agree with. It's, here's why. First, like all the stuff on working population, like demographics and so on, I mean, look at autonomous robotics. Look at how good that is getting. If you're following the space, grasping, packing, every subroutine is getting really good. Go to vicarious.com and just take a look at what the hands can do nowadays or look at, you know, the, the Boston Dynamics spot robot. It's really getting there. I mean, it's already been there within warehouses like diapers.com has had that for a while. I built a, you know, led the build out of a uh, robotic genomics lab a decade ago. So I know something about this. You can look at my like TR35 talk from, from 2013 on this. And it was pretty good a decade ago for like industrial applications. But now the autonomy, meaning the ability to, to work in unpredictable environments has radically improved. And so it's all robots, right? It's all going to switch over to a robotic workforce. And so the entire 20th century model of quantity gives way to quality. It's the strength of your programmers more than the size of your population. So let me, I guess, summarize your argument that the traditional Zihan argument, and this is also right made by a lot of other people, that demographics tends to have a very large impact on long-term outcomes is not going to be particularly relevant in the 21st century because basically robotics and mass production of what might be called, I don't know, like substitute robot labor is going to play a much larger role in national outcomes. Yeah, I mean, well... That's part of it. It's not even a future thing. It's a past thing. WhatsApp had 55 people and got to 500 million people. Instagram had 12 people. Minecraft had one guy. Satoshi was one guy. So the leverage that technology gives you, we've already got those robots on the internet. In fact, if you go to any major website and you go, for example, wsj.com front slash robots.txt, right? It basically refers to 
the spiders, the web crawlers as robots, you know, in the sense of virtual robots that are doing things. So the virtual robots have enabled us to scale. When you hit enter, a bunch of virtual robots go and do thousands of tasks for you. And now we're just going to get physical robots. So the proof point is already there. Did I care about the demographics of the U.S. when you're talking about 12 people? No, you just need 12 really smart people. You don't need 300 million people. And in fact, those 12 smart people were able to disrupt Kodak, which had way more than 12 people. I mean, more like 12,000. I don't remember the exact number, but something in that range. So it's a very rearward looking thing. Look, I'm not saying demographics has no impact, but I think it mostly has a negative impact in the sense of lots of people to manage is more like a liability than an asset. Lots of people, you know, you get the uh, the stuff like Moses Nimes' book, The End of Power, or, you know, Martin Gurry's book, you know, The Revolt of the Public, right? You know, 30 years ago, it was not that easy to know the thoughts of the people in your community. It really wasn't, you know? I grew up in the U.S., you know, you did too. You probably remember a time before social media and certainly before everybody posting on social media. And it just wasn't that easy to like just figure out what everybody else was thinking. You know, if you've read somebody else's thoughts, it was, you know, either A, it was a friend or a family member, right? You know, or more likely it was a newscaster or it was like a, you know, a periodical. There really weren't that many people who were broadcasting. And now because everybody's broadcasting, everybody knows everybody else is thinking and they can't stand it, right? And so the, rather than the sort of 20th century environment where many people were just sort of ignorantly blissful, at least the, the second half of the 20th century, the first half was very bad. Rather than that environment, you have something where the more people you have, the more disalignment you have. Because, you know, when you have N people, you have two of the N possible outcomes, right? For example, one person can win or lose. With two people, you could have win-win, win-lose, lose-win, and lose-lose. With three people, you have two of the third outcomes. With four people, you have two of the fourth, and so on. This is when, when you know, startup people and VCs talk about alignment. What they mean is that the upper right quadrant of the two by two by two by two hypercube is a place where everybody wins, that the payoff from that is so large that it overwhelms all the off diagonals where half the group gangs up on the other half of the group to take their resources, right? That's what it means to align people. And the more people you have, the harder it is to align them. So I think the demographic stuff is very rearward looking. What matters is really quality, not quantity. Those are, it's a very different filter. Then the net food and energy imported thing on China, I don't think that's an issue either, really, because China can build nuclear power plants. China can actually build stuff, right? They can build a train station in nine hours. Last year, before everybody was, you know, before it like became very political to talk about anything you know, related to China, I posted a bunch of videos of the Chinese building not just, you've seen the skyscraper in like 12 days, right? But they've done a lot of this stuff, right? There's just some of the stuff that's made it to, you know, the internet. That's, you know, Bill Gates had this thing about how they poured more concrete in three years than the U.S. did in, in a century. And the thing is, just one thing, right? If they had built out their country and they'd gone into lots of debt, right? Or they built out their country and they had saved money, but they were an importer. The thing is, they did all three, right? They have built up huge capital reserves, They've become the largest exporter in the world, and they've built up their own country, which means this enormous amount of productive capacity was unlocked when they switched from communism to capitalism. And I think it's just, you know, if you heard the term COPE, C-O-P-E, I think it's just COPE, frankly, COPE and ignorance, because unless you, like, you can use Chrome still, and you can surf the Chinese web, and you can actually read about what's going on there. You actually get a lot more signal out of that 
than just surfing. I mean, you pretty much know what's going on in the US, right? Missing three days of like Trump COVID stuff or whatever, you don't learn anything from that. It's really like paging into a soap opera where you know the characters, you know the good and bad guys. It's like, oh, what did they do next, right? That's what it means, like narrative journalism. It's like your extra facts. You don't really get too many. You know who the good and bad guys are. But if you go and just surf the Chinese web and you know use translation to see that and especially focus on what they're doing technologically, it's like far ahead in some ways. So that food and energy importer, I don't even think that's an issue because you build nuclear plants, you have basically unlimited energy, then you can, I mean, like with more energy input, you can grow more food, you know, you can, you can do all that. All right, now let's go to the U.S. So, and then let's go to our other questions. It's not just the politics in the U.S. You know, you said, for example, that the U.S. is still attracting talent. That's actually not true. If you look at the F1 visas, you look at H1Bs, you look at, you know, basically the inbound foreign students, that's just gotten crushed. We're talking like 90, 95% declines this year. And it's not going to come back at least not all the way, for several reasons. First is the U.S. physically is simply no longer as attractive a place to come to. It's not just COVID, though that's a big thing. It is a civil unrest, which may only grow. It is the fires, it, it, you know, on the West Coast. It is, you know, like the just the general, I mean, the craziness, the shootings and stuff on the streets. It is something where, you know, over the last 20 years, a big part of the value proposition of being physically in America has been uploaded to the cloud. And so if you actually think of the partition between physical America and digital America, much of the value proposition of being physically in the United States is now in the cloud so that, you know, you think about, again, like four possibilities, being physically in the U.S., being and having the Internet, right, being physically in the U.S. and not having the Internet, being outside the U.S. and having the Internet and being outside the U.S. and not having the Internet. You know, 30 years ago, the Internet was a non-issue in terms of the value add. Right, everybody would pick physically being in America out of outside. Up to 2019, I think you can make a case that physically in America with the internet was better than outside America with the internet. Today, I don't think you can make that case. I think being physically in the United States is a net negative relative to the alternative, being in a country that has COVID under control is just one example. So I don't think it's true that almost every other region has it worse. I think, you know, you've got once you've got the internet, you have an American life because like Uber exists everywhere and email exists everywhere. All that stuff is being homogenized out. Starbucks is everywhere and so on, right? So the U.S. is basically like a black hole now where you just don't want to enter it because you don't want to get shot or, you know, have like your business set on fire or have crazy people yell at you and, and whatnot. And I think it's just going to get worse. Like the free fall that the U.S. has had this year, one of the things people are not paying attention to as much are the economic stats. It's going to be in recession for a while until you know a vaccine comes through, I think, because lockdown continues in different ways in different places. And that means less money, and less money means more scarcity. Everybody was angry at each other, even when the economy was booming up until January, and now they're just going crazy. So I think it gets worse um, than other things. You mentioned like giant moats. Well, the thing is that those moats and the US military, I think of as imaginal line, because it's built to fight the last war. What came over those two moats of the Atlantic and Pacific was COVID-19. And that bypassed every defense, that bypassed every aircraft carrier. In fact, it sidelined aircraft carriers. I'm not sure if you saw that episode from earlier this year where these guys called in and they said, oh, you know, everybody's got COVID. We have to sideline it and so on. And look, I understand why they did that. But now everybody in the world knows, okay, all the stuff on WMD where everybody was talking about NB and C, you know, nuclear, biological and chemical weapons. So we had nuclear, which was 
you know, supposedly why Iraq was invaded. Chemical weapons came up with Assad, ostensibly, though people don't know if he, what, what actually happened there. I mean, at least I've seen it disputed. I don't know the details of that. But the biological weapons have, are the thing that hasn't, that's, that's a dog that hasn't barked. Every country in the world, including bad actors, has seen, well, guess what? The U.S. can be brought to its knees by COVID. And COVID, we're fortunate, is not the virus from contagion. You know, the virus from contagion is really actually very different, right? And so we hope this doesn't happen, but it's very possible that you get something where there's like a worse virus, right? And if the U.S. can be this messed up by one biological virus, it could be messed up by worse stuff, right? Whether that's intentional or something else that comes or a mutant version of COVID, like it would happen with the Spanish flu and so on. So the geography, like basically the U.S. is being invaded by a virus. It's pillaging it. It's killing people. And then, you know, then to the, the concept of the U.S. military as itself, I think the U.S. military is probably a paper tiger. And what I mean by that is not that obviously it has real guns and has real bombs and all that stuff. But I think in a confrontation over Taiwan, you know, one of the things Washington Post reported, this is not like a secret or anything, but there's a lot of war games that the U.S. You know, military, as well as folks who work in the U.S. military do. And it keeps losing these confrontations to China. Right. In the war games, that is right. But that's just a war game. What, what's a better point, proof point? Better proof point is every American institution failed during COVID, right? Moreover, and this is less obvious to people, the military failed. Because if you Google 2018 pandemic you know, response or biodefense, the US military had this whole biodefense strategy. If you recall, remember anthrax in like 2001 after 9-11, right? There was a big anthrax scare because folks, you know, senders were sent like envelopes with anthrax spores. And people thought that that was just the next penny to drop and the U.S. was going to be hit by a bunch of terrorist attacks. It was 9-11 and anthrax and who knows what next. The, the Beltway snipers, it was a you know, disturbing time. Didn't happen. However, what did happen was after anthrax, the U.S. military had this huge budget for biodefense. And you know, there are other things. There was SARS in 2003. There was you know, the swine flu, There was, which wasn't that serious, but it was definitely something. There was Ebola in 2014. There were quite a few scares. And there's all this budget appropriate, all these plans written down, these military, all these plans for a pandemic. And then when it actually happens, MIA, right? The most they could do was basically the Javits Center thing, which is fine, but setting up some folding chairs as a mitigating effort is not the same thing as having some secret plan, you know, out of the movies to save the country from this deadly virus. So the military also failed in COVID. It's not just that the FDA and CDC and state governments and the U.S. government and so on failed. And I think, you know, that they, in a confrontation with China, this military has been attacking basically unfortunate, you know, people in, in the Middle East, guys who frankly can't fight back as much. You know, they're, these are, you know, for example, to impose a no-fly zone, you have total air supremacy. These people don't have an air force in, in Iraq, the, the, you know, Afghanistan. I'm not saying like, like ISIS is a good guy, okay? They have their drones or whatever, but they're simply not an industrial power. They're not, they're not something that's on the same size or scale, you know, that, that could actually be a threat. So, you know, the giant moats thing, a giant military, I'm actually, and then you, there's other signals as well. If you look at the, you know, recent fighter planes, they've been massively over budget. You look at the fact that Intel has missed a cycle, and so it's now behind, and TSMC has pulled ahead. I think the U.S. has been coasting for a long, long time, and that's all catching up with us. And it's actually much farther behind where it thinks it is. Another way of thinking about it is, you know, when I mention this stuff about building, a lot of people will say, but, but the U.S. could do that. It's just, it's just regulations. It's just, it's just this, it's just that. And my answer to that is, yeah, okay, you know, clearly China could have built this 
you know, all this infrastructure and what was just holding them back was communism. But from that standing start in 1978, it took them 40 years to get to where they are, right? Like the U.S. is like a really out of shape guy who's saying, thinks they're still the USA of 1950 and they can walk over to the bench press and knock out 225 for reps and they haven't lifted weights in like 30 years, 50 years, right? It's not going to happen that easily. And finally, like the scientific and engineering talent, you know, there's a graph which you can see, which shows that the majority of technology companies now, like unicorns, are now outside the U.S., right? That crossing point, I think, happened in 2018. And now with the remote, you don't have to be there. You're, you're organized by time zone. So, and then we haven't even gotten yet to the fact that we're going to have, I think, a wave of municipal bankruptcies in the U.S. and even more craziness to come. So let me pause there. That was a huge download. Go. Yeah, so I don't want to, right, like, I, I agree with most of your analysis of the U.S. I mean, most of our our institutions basically failed, right? I think we're in for a very rough 10 to 20 years. I think what I would, I guess, put as the key distinctions, one, I think the moats are useful just in terms of territorial integrity. And, right, like, we don't need a military for territorial integrity. Our, our, our military is for basically global hegemony. But most of our trade is internal. The U.S. total GDP, I think, is only 8% international trade, which is very low compared to most other countries, which basically gives us an advantage that we are not, right, like we are basically subsidizing a global trade network that we're not particularly benefiting from. And yeah, right, like China builds things. They're at the peak of their strength. They have that advantage. To me, I think the key, maybe what, what might be the crux of our disagreement is the idea of what is the value of, of demography where if I understand your argument is that kind of engineering and robotics talent can overcome what might have been determined by demography uh, historically, but now there is a, basically a step change in that function. And then two is, right, the internet, is how does the internet play into this? And I, maybe you have a more, like, I don't know, like optimistic view of the internet than I do, in the sense that, right, like China has the, the Great Firewall. Most of the Arab Spring, when things got bad, they realized, okay, let's just shut down the internet. And so I see the world coming into like an increasingly bifurcated internet where we already have the U.S. and China. We're increasingly seeing right Europe have its own separate internet with GDPR. Or if you have a European website, you have all these pop-up ads and you have all of these kind of restricting requirements. Then you have Russia, which is sort of beginning to carve out their own, I don't know, I guess, sphere of internet. And the advantage of the U.S., why the U.S. has historically been able to attract a large amount of talent, is our internal market. If you are like very capable and very ambitious, you come to the U.S., because the upside is basically much higher. And they've done like studies looking at uh, Sweden and Sweden, like literally you can find like the kids who got the highest grades moved to the US and the kids who got like mediocre grades stayed in Sweden. And so there is this pull that I agree, it probably has like somewhat diminished over the last decade or so. And I, I suspect it might continue to diminish over the next, right, like next decade. But I, I, I don't know, I see those, I guess, fundamental strengths as still relatively strong. I want to push back on just two things there and let's move on to other questions. Okay. So this is percentage of world GDP has been declining. And this year, the crash in economic activity, I think, like, we'll see what happens. But I feel it's it's like, you know, 2020 was a sickening descent, right? It was something where lots of stuff was broken. And now, you know, basic functions of government, like police and fire, don't work locally. You know, basic functions. Public health does not work. Right. The politicians at all levels, whether state, local, certainly federal, just you know, the military did not defend Americans. Right. Like even basic factual information is difficult to come by. These are really fundamental issues that, you know, a rearward looking thing, which is 
I, I don't think captures what that what that dynamic actually results in. Let me clarify, because I don't think this is like I, I don't see myself as particularly rearward looking. I mean, when I'm looking at like what are kind of historical instances of the situation we're in now, it's basically the end of the I actually don't know how to pronounce this, like Qing Dynasty, Qing Dynasty, QING, where that basically took like right, 150 years or so for them to have some kind of national rebirth or kind of the, the transition from the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire, right? These were basically very, I don't know, chaotic social transformations. And I think we're in maybe not as chaotic, but a quite chaotic social transformation in the US over the next 20 years, where we should be looking for those as like basically guides for how to sort of rebuild a national consensus, some functioning institutions. I'm assuming that the timeline is going to be much shorter just because I think, right, with modernity, we have accelerated a lot of timelines that historically would have taken, right, like, I don't know, high decades. Now they might take low decades. But I feel that we're on, like, maybe this is my optimism. I feel we're on similar pages with the level of social dysfunction. But I think that this can be come out of, like, there, there can be, right, like, we're going to see demographic transition with basically the boomers going out of power. And I think that can be with a little bit of luck coupled with a institutional revival that hopefully can at least correct some of these deep flaws that we currently have. A few thoughts on that. So one is, I'm not so sure that the boomers leaving the stage will actually be good for American management. I know people put a lot of blame on the boomers, but I'm not sure that the younger generation like knows what capitalism is, for example. That's probably true. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you look at polls and so on, you're talking about 20 or 30 point gaps there, you know, there's certainly millennials who are extremely competent managers of businesses and, and so on. And there's those who are very much not. But the question of whether there will be a national rebirth, you know, there wasn't for Argentina. It was a rich country that then became poor. Right. And it's just become a basket case since then, just gone through currency crisis and currency crisis that plenty still has great land and all this type of stuff. It just never just lost the plot. Right. And, you know, the American Republic became the American Empire 75 years ago, you know, so it already is an empire in the sense of it has military bases in countries where those people don't have a vote in an American election. And, you know, if you've outsourced your military to another power, even if ostensibly consensually, unless you yourself voted for that, you have to be said to not fully be a citizen, right? If you, if you don't have a sovereign military over your state, you're not actually a citizen. So the number of people under the American umbrella is way more than the 300 million, quote, citizens. So it's kind of already an empire. Now, this is the question of where it's the fall of the empire. My thinking on this, to, to sound a positive note, okay, for a second. So, you know, people sometimes mistake me as a pessimist or an optimist. I think, I think I'm a realist. I may be wrong, but at least stating assumptions. So strike a somewhat positive note, though. I think of the U.S. today as actually being most analogous to the India of my youth. Okay. One of the weirdest things to me is how the U.S. and India have sort of, in a way I would have thought impossible in the 80s, started almost trade places where the India of my youth had lots and lots of smart people, but just couldn't get it together as a country. And so everybody who was smart, who could, tried to leave. And, you know, they went and set up in, you know, various places, but especially the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, and did quite well there overall. And then that provided an example for the people back home. And then when the time was right, then you kind of had the bilateral, it's not brain drain, really, it's brain circulation. You know, the examples of Vinod Kozla and others, oh, IT, that's a thing that Indians can do that actually we're really good at. It's a new sector. There's no discrimination against us. It's not an old boys network or whatever. And ta-da, we can do this. 
And, you know, that led to you know, during, you know, Y2K with some of the first outsourcing stuff or offshoring or whatever. I know it gets a bad name in the U.S. and I get that. In India, it was like this huge mana from heaven. And now today, the U.S. has become like that, where there's still plenty of smart people in the physical United States. They just cannot align on anything. They can't get anything together beyond company scale, right? They, they, you can't even build a, a small building in California, right? So anything beyond the private property, it's impossible to get consensus on to do something good, right? Forget federal level or state level. And so what fixed India, or at least partially, was people leaving. Now, I'll give you another example, which is what reformed China. It was actually the fact that Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore existed, where you could you know, see that people of the same ethnicity and the same culture and all the same values, so you couldn't say that it was something totally foreign to you or anything like that, were flourishing under a different operating system. And in fact, it was you know, Lee Kuan Yew who helped Deng Xiaoping reform China, right? And certainly Hong Kong was critical to that as well because Shenzhen was put across the causeway. So I think that whether you think the U.S. can be reformed or whether you think the U.S. can't be, the next step is actually to exit in some sense, whether virtually or physically, to start building something better. And in that example, maybe the 2040 or 2030 U.S. will reform itself. There'll be like a Satya Nadella type who comes to power. And that person, you know, Satya Nadella was able to point to Google and point to Facebook and say, look, Microsoft, hey, guys. I mean, he was a lifer at Microsoft, right? So he had the credibility inside to be like, look, see, Bomber got it wrong. Open source was actually really important. We missed a whole decade on this. We need to catch up. We need to go to SaaS. We need to do all the stuff. And Satya was able to take those external proof points and change the culture within Microsoft in a way that he couldn't have done internally by himself, right? And so that's a better case scenario, right? That's a case where there's some, you know, person who can revive the U.S. who points to the example of Americans either abroad or who have expatriated or who have done things, you know, via this internet model that I've been mentioning. They don't have to fully expatriate, by the way. They could just be overseas. And, and hey, other Americans did that. Why can't we copy that and emulate that, right? They've got the proof ones. And then... Alternatively, if the U.S. doesn't get together, well, guess what? You went and controlled your own destiny, right? So either way, the best strategy is to exit and to, to figure out a way to do something where you have total root control over it. And that, that is both a reform strategy and it's a hedge strategy. It's the same with crypto, actually. You know, with crypto, you disagree with monetary policy. And for many, many years, people would throw their remotes at the TV, you know, oh my God, I can't believe what so-and-so is doing. And you know the whole Bernanke thing in 2008, printing all that money, it seems quaint now to be concerned with printing only $787 billion. I'm not sure how many trillions we printed this year. There's not, not being too much on that. There's a lot of stuff on memes in the New York Times, but not so much on the trillions of dollars that was printed, right? And where it went, you know, to, to the even the nearest billion. Does anybody know? But the thing is that that doesn't get people as upset anymore because they can opt out. They can buy the exit that is Bitcoin. And that gives them both the way to profit directly and a way to profit indirectly because hopefully what that does, it serves as an example for governments to get their act together, which it has done because in China, they're actually doing a blockchain-based currency, right? Every government in the world is studying crypto. Every bank in the world is studying crypto. That exit provoked a reform a 40, 50-year-old banking technology as well as more importantly, banking culture that wouldn't have been possible had you just gone and yelled at banks or protest banks. Occupy Wall Street did not do that. Cryptocurrency did that. 
So even though I'm sympathetic, by the way, in some ways to what the Occupy Wall Street people, you know, I don't believe student loans are good. I think they're usurious in many ways. I think I think a lot of the problems they point to are right. I think their solutions are often incorrect. So like half a cheer or one cheer for, for what they did, but not for their actual solutions. In your previous, I guess, argument, you were making this point that crypto is a little bit of an exit from central banking and that previously people were had no choice whether to follow the kind of central bank's rules and now crypto has provided an alternative for that. And I think you kind of hinted, but never didn't really go into depth into right, like how exit either via the internet or physically could create some degree of pressure on broader governance reforms. And this is sort of like how Taiwan, Singapore, and Hong Kong led to pressure on China because they realized, hey, this is working right there. Chinese were Chinese and they're getting rich and we're still kind of dirt poor in fields. And so to me, I think this has two layers. One on the city level, where particularly with some cities like New York, like San Francisco, also the state of California, they are very top heavy. Their revenue streams are extremely dependent on high income earners. And so there could be, right, if you're already kind of seeing this in, in both New York and in San Francisco, the exodus of these high income earners and whether they they might not return post-COVID or return in lower numbers, that will put uh, severe constraints on their budget, which could see this, I guess, competition, at least at, on the city and or state level. And then at least on the national level, right, what does this, I guess, exit look like? And, and how does that, what is that dynamic that plays out? What are the timeframes? I think there's going to be exit in a lot of different ways. I do think that, you know, in 1960, America was the country everybody wanted to come to, but 2020 certainly by 2030, America is the country everybody wants to get out of. I expect like on the order of a million or more people to leave the U.S. over the next 10 years. I think that's just going to be totally exponential. It'll be like, it'll go up from a few people a year to, which it wasn't like before the year 2000, to hundreds of thousands of people a year, maybe more. And I think that's like a serious departure. What types of people are leaving? Is it Mexicans going back to Mexico? Indians going back to India? Is it high income earners? Is it medium? If there is this mass exodus, like what type of people is it? It's a great question. So I would actually expect both. Essentially, immigrants themselves are the most likely to, to emigrate because they came and they came for a job or something and then they decided to go back, right? The thing is, when you look at, and a lot of other folks decide not to come in the first place, right? The drama of you know, American politics or what have you, whether people think it's entertaining or something within the U.S., it's sort of, it's entertaining slash horrifying when you're outside. You know, it takes on a very different cast. It's like, you know, it's like a family fighting amongst themselves in public. You just kind of want no piece of that, right? You just don't want to get near that. And especially when they're fighting with a horror that's going off occasionally and blowing down houses. <laughs> exactly. That's right. I mean, like it's America. Everybody has guns, right? People are crazy. And so, and look, you know, not taking a position on guns. I'm just saying there's millions and millions of guns in the U.S., right? And so when tempers fray, the consequences can be worse. So all these folks overseas, they, you know, they're thinking twice about coming in the first place. Who are the folks who leave? Well, so first, immigrants themselves will re-emigrate. But the one thing I want to say is, the most American thing in the world is leaving your country in search of a better life, right? Now, there has been the presumption on both left and right that everybody wants to come to the U.S. And the left's position is being let everybody in, and the right's position is being not so fast, we don't want to let everybody in. But both of them have presumed that America is a country everybody wants to be in. Once America is a country everybody wants to get out of, I think all that changes dramatically, and the people who leave, they're going to be called unpatriotic, they're going to be said, oh, they're shirking their duty, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and so it'll flip on itself very quickly. 
kind, may already have been doing so. But there's reasons to leave that are not simply economic. For example, you know, all else being equal, many people, many Indian immigrants, for example, would prefer in India where their children could grow up speaking the language if it had first world conveniences, right? What they want is, even if this is contradictory, maybe it's not, what they want is, you know, iPhone and Starbucks and pay of roads, but they also want Hinduism and they want, you know, that culture, just for example, right? And if you can get that in India and you don't have to leave and everybody speaks the language, they can pronounce your name. Why would you come in the first place or why would you stay? Why don't you just go back, right? So, so one group is immigrants. Second group are remote workers who've already, many of them have decamped already, right? During COVID, huge flight of this. This is this whoosh, because you can be in the Bahamas. You literally can be in the Bahamas, right? Why the F would you decide to sit in your office when you could be there, right? Or wherever you want in the world, right? It's not actually that expensive. You can go to nomadlist.io or teleport.org. It's cheaper often to live overseas, sometimes by like 70 or 80% than it is to live in San Francisco or New York. These are some of the most expensive places in the world. And so people are like, oh, only the rich will emigrate. No, actually, you emigrate because you're not rich and because you want to save money. You know, like you're actually like smart. Like there's the whole backpacker thing. There's the digital nomad thing and so on. That's the second group, remote workers, digital nomads, backpacker types and so on. People who want to save money, some of the fire people, you know, like the financial independence retire early. I think those are the two big groups at the beginning. And then, you know, depending on how things go, I think you might see a third group, which are like political refugees of one stripe or another. And, you know, all that sounds really, oh my God, dystopian or whatever. But we should also remember where did all those immigrants to the US come from, right? Why did Iranians come here, right? Why did the Persians come here? Why did the so many people from China come here or India? Vietnam, Eastern Europe, Russia, South America, Latin America, it's, you know, the Middle East, because those countries were dysfunctional, right? Because they had, you know, communism, or they had the Islamic revolution in Iran, or they had socialism in India, or they had like narco terrorists, or they had just bad government, you know? And so all those folks came here. And so there's a big chunk of the U.S. that within living memory knows that, hey, we had to skedaddle, right? That's like on the order of 20% of the U.S., and that's totally legitimate to do that, right? Like we never say, you know, to like a Polish immigrant or a Mexican immigrant or an Indian immigrant, why don't you stay at home and fix your country, right? That, that's not actually a frame of reference at all, right? It's interesting to think about that because the camera is never put on what they came from. And, you know, the question is, where does your obligation begin and end at a certain point? Like when you can't fix something within your lifetime or at least under the current circumstances, there's no obligation to do that which cannot be done, in my view. Yeah. So I guess moving to a slightly related topic, you had a tweet recently, a few months ago, about how to build a city. And it's how to build a city, build a community in the cloud, organize the economy around remote work, enforce laws with smart contracts, practice in-person norms of civility, simulate architecture in VR, crowdfund territory, and materialize the city into the real world. So I guess explain the thinking behind that tweet and then I guess maybe go into a little bit more depth as to what does that look like? Yeah, you know, that was interesting. That's like, you know, a pure text tweet that got like almost, you know, 5,000 likes, right? No image or anything like that, just like the pure concept. So just the thinking there is it is a blueprint for starting a city with zero dollars, right? That's actually very important to me is, you know, I think all the time about how to hyper deflate costs, right? For lots of reasons, but one of them is when you hyper deflate the cost, I mean, you get a lot more of it. Another is it's less risky, so more people will try it, so you get more talent. 
A third is you can get talent from around the world because not everybody has a million bucks or a hundred thousand or even 10,000 and so on and so forth, right? So the idea here is to recognize the extent to which a number of digital technologies have evolved to the point that literally by clicking keys, right? By hitting keys and tapping mice buttons, you can build a city in the cloud. It's actually insane to think of that, but just a sequence of keystrokes and, and mouse presses you can, I mean, that's what Autodesk is, right? Like that's what CAD is. You're literally building. I mean, you may import some data sets and so on. You know, you may import textures. I'm not saying that everything is just generated purely by keystrokes, okay? But fundamentally, you can you can do this. And then you remember the scene from Fight Club where they panned around the room and IKEA price tags popped out of every chair. Do you remember that? Yeah. You could imagine like that. Okay, a visual where now you pan around the city and price tags pop out for how much it would cost a construction crew to materialize that object in the physical world. Now, crucially, that's going to, it's a really cool thing to think about, right? And crucially, every price tag there has tremendous variation based on whether it's being built in, say, South Korea or Dubai or Nigeria or Sao Paulo or Kansas, right? Or, or San Francisco, right? Massive variation. But the variation is much larger than people think because normally people don't think in this way, right? It's kind of like when Google News first came out, you could, for the first time, compare the headlines of many, many different news organizations and see how they were framing the same concept. I don't think people realize the fact that there's like a 10 or 100x difference in construction costs for the same building in different places. And being able to actually have contractors bid on it would be quite interesting, right? Moreover, once you start thinking digital first for everything, and that's just generally my ideology, by the way. You know, first, for example, documents, we already think this is so trivial to point out, but I'll just make a point of it. Documents are one of the first things to go digital first, because before you literally had to write on a piece of paper or hit keys on a typewriter to generate a document, right? Even photocopying was a big thing, like Xerox was a huge breakthrough, actually, right? So it was like a big pain to copy something. Now we don't even think like, oh, wow, copy, we've got copy and paste, that's Xerox, right? I mean, they're still photocopiers, you still use them. But, you know, when you think about authoring a document, you usually think about it digital first. Now, I like pen and paper for doing math and for learning things. You know, I still use pen and paper. I think pen and paper is actually pretty important. But in the same way, once you go to any area and you start thinking about it digital first, you go to biology, digital first is let me start with the genome, right? Let me start with the genome of this organism that I'm studying. Let me design RNA probes or DNA probes from things. Let me look at the list of proteins. Okay. That's digital first, right? I go to currency. Okay, well, I start with the APIs, right? So you're the bank APIs, fintech APIs, or it's now cryptocurrency, it's the blockchain APIs, right? And now, you know, you apply that to each area and the areas where you can't do that yet are the areas where you start thinking about how to do it digital first, you know? And so starting a city digital first is really, really important because then everything can be built in the cloud. You can simulate everything in VR and AR. And it's almost like you've got this spectral thing that exists up there, and then you put on the glasses and you can see the building next to you before it actually exists, which is very powerful. So yeah, I want to push back on that a little bit. If we think about, right, like I like to kind of joke, there's three ways to build a city. One is you're a government. If you're a government, you have two advantages. You have no budgetary constraints, so you can spend a lot more money. And then two, you can basically force people to live there because you just tell the bureaucrats, if you want to get promoted, you have to go live in the, the new city. And that's cities like Brasilia, that's Abuja, that's Astana, which was recently renamed the, the Kazakhstani capital. Uh, two, there is an economic reason. And typically the economic reason is there's a natural port where there's a mine 
that people move to and they initially start mining the, the resource or they start using the port to, to trade. And then if people start living there, that there's this agglomeration that allows, right, like sustains it itself and is no longer dependent on that original resource. And then the, the third reason is kind of religious. It doesn't have to be religion per se. It just needs to be a strong sense of identity. And that identity needs to be paired with persecution. And so what that is, is that's right, the Jews founding Israel being persecuted in the Middle East, where they have a, a shared religion identity that stretches back thousands of years. That's the Mormons going to Salt Lake City to found Utah to found Salt Lake City, because they have this, this new religion that it has a very strong sense of in-group, and they're basically persecuted first in New England, then in, I think, Missouri, uh, before kind of striking out on their own. That is one of, one of the, I guess, modern, I mean, there's a recent Netflix documentary, Wild Wild Country, which is another example of, right, this, this religion serving as the defining force. And for, like, how this turns out poorly, it's, it's obviously Jonestown in Guyana, where they managed to found a city. It's only a thousand people, but it's a, it's a community. And obviously, that ends very, very poorly. So you need this kind of strong in-group combined with this sense of persecution. And what I, I guess, don't right, fully see with this kind of cloud city is, okay, let's say, right, one, if you can do all of your remote work online, then like how much of your physical, like what is the advantage of being in person? If I'm thinking, I, I would actually think that, I, I don't know, maybe you like, it's not clear to me that being in person for your personal life is necessarily better than being in person for your work life. Maybe you want to be in person for your work life, but you want to be remote for your personal life with the obvious exception of kind of marriage and cohabitation. And then I guess, right, like two, it's okay. So let's say that like there is this advantage to, right, like you, you do want to live amongst kind of like-minded people. Is that enough to justify? Because even if you're going to a region that has like relatively low build costs, is that enough to justify the, the new construction costs? Let me stop there and, and get your feedback. Yeah. So, well, first is, I do think you can get far with digital, but I do think it ultimately comes back to physical because, you know, there's some things that uh, you can only do in person. For example, it's hard to reproduce over the internet so far, right? But I also think that if you ask people what community or, you know, many people say, oh, college was the best, right? You know, college was the best place. Why is that? It's because college actually has selective admissions to form a, a somewhat culturally aligned community. It's actually a really deep point, right? You're basically around people of like mind. And so you have got an open door policy and you go and hang out with people and so on. Whereas in any city, there's no application process for an apartment building, right? So you don't have anything really in common with the people in your building. You may live near, you may, you may even work near, you may pay the same price, but you may not share the same values. And there's certainly no invitation to go and chat with them or hang out with them. Many people don't even know who's next door to them, right? So there's a huge amount of dead space surrounding you. And that dead space is actually super valuable. To give an analogy, in computers, there's, you know, there's different kinds of cash, you know, C-A-C-H-E. There's, you know, actual registers within the CPU. There's the L2 cache. Then there's RAM. Then you hit hard disk. And then you hit, like, actually a remote server on the internet. And those that takes like a lot longer than anything else. Point being, it's like in the same way you've got something on your desk, you've got something, you know, in the next room, and then you've got something like downstairs or whatever. Uh, you've got different kinds of storage. What happens is once all of the space around you becomes unusable and unoptimized, you have to travel and spend much more energy to go much further to do things. And a huge amount of your life is actually wasted because your physical environment is not actually configured to give you maximum health, maximum fitness, maximum productivity, best nutrition, 
all that type of stuff. There's so much you can do if you have a clean slate. You know, for example, just to give you one small example, if you get a new job and across the street, it happens to be like a donut shop, you know, people will tend to pack on weight due to that. If it was like a salad place, they're going to do that less so because the proximity actually does matter, right? And if you actually have a community that is being selected online because they share common values and they build a city together, they're going to customize it in thousands of different ways such that it'll be like pretty awesome. For example, a vegan city, right? A CrossFit city or a town, by the way. It doesn't have to be a full city, right? A CrossFit town, a vegan town, a town of Chinese speakers, right? A town of people who practice a particular religion, you know, a town of people who are artists. There's, there's a reason that, you know, college campuses have departments, you know? It's like you group a bunch of people physically together who share the same interests and magical things happen. So I actually am a big believer in that. What I think is going to happen is software is reorganizing the world on the basis of ideological alignment and interests and values as opposed to geography. And by the way, I think your points that were good, government-directed cities, resource-directed cities, religious identity and persecution-based cities. There's a fourth, though, which are university-based cities. And I think that's also like some combination of university and, and identity will be how this one or these form where essentially you take groups of people who are aligned off of communities like Twitter, you pull them together in a community of knowledge workers online with selective admissions, and that becomes the core for this. Stay tuned, because I'm going to do something on this. So let's see if maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right. We'll see if it works. One way to kind of test that hypothesis is previous times where there were step functions in communication technology, I guess the printing press, and then maybe, I don't know, like mass mailing, were there similar moves towards what might be described as, I don't know, intentional communities or kind of identity-based communities? Yeah. Well, the printing press caused the 30 years war and the split of, the, of Europe into Protestant and Catholic. So that's a good example. Violent one, but a real one. In the US, like in the 1800s, there were all these communes that arose. You know, communism had a different meaning prior to, you know, it happening in Europe. It meant living together voluntarily in a commune, like the Oneida commune or you know, so on. There's a great book called Communistic Societies of the United States by Charles Nordhoff, which I, you know, it's on Google Books, it's free. And you look at that and you're like, oh, these are opt-in voluntary communities, kind of like kibbutzes, actually. You know, a lot of kibbutzes have become profitable, right? A lot of the communes actually did as well. They specialize in something like woodworking and they practice their particular religious beliefs, and it's all opt-in and voluntary, right? Because it's opt-in voluntary, well, some of them were like kind of crazy, like the shakers, where they said, you know, like nobody can have kids or, or what have you, so they didn't reproduce. <laughs> so surprisingly, they're not, they're, they, they didn't conquer the world. <laughs> yeah, they didn't conquer the world, exactly, right? But others did quite well. So I think that we're sort of back to the future there. It was a time of like a weaker federal government in many ways. You could basically ignore the federal government for most of what you were doing. And I think we're going to go back to that future over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Let's then play this out. What does this look like? In five years, are we going to see one of these communities of 10,000 people in 10 years, 15 years? Absolutely. I bet five years by 2025, we will have the first 10,000 person cloud city. I would definitely be betting on that. Okay. Not materialized yet in the cloud. At least in the cloud. Okay. Well, what does it look like in the cloud? Because there are already like online communities that have way more than 10,000 people. I mean, they're sort of yes. Reddit, right, forums, right? So if we're talking about this kind of cloud community, the thing I actually think of most closely is kind of Anna Gott's uh, interintellect, where it has this very specific intellectual vibe 
that has attracted a lot of people from different places. And that's right. Like it is like curated intentional community. That's not a forum that I see is kind of most analogous to what you're describing. Is that, is that fair or are you envisioning something different? I assume you know her, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I know her. I know her. I like intra-intellect. I think that's good. I might even invest in it or something. So a few thoughts. One is going back to our early comment on quality versus quantity in 2004, 2005, 2006, the whole name of the game was getting people online, right? Get people online, get people online. So viral growth hacks, you know, so, so the iPhone and Facebook, right? Both mobile and social networks brought hundreds of millions of people online, right? And what's remarkable is that today the issue is not getting lots of people online. It's actually something where if you have any distribution on social media and you start something new, it is actually about filtering such that that huge community becomes a manageable group of aligned people. Because there's a lot of people who will, for example, hate follow you on Twitter. They're not actually aligned with you. They just dislike you and want to keep tabs on you or something, right? Not my style, but there's definitely people who do that. The, the thing about this is you don't need to be uh, super viral. You want to have an aligned community, again, quality over quantity. And so this stage of things, I think, is paring things down after blowing them up. So maybe it's kind of, I guess, right, like Kanye West having a big audience and now figuring out who wants to move him to with his town in Wyoming. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Maybe one out of 100 people or whatever does it, but that's enough for something legit, right? Work out the math on it, right? You have to make sure that like the economics work for the scale of the thing he's building. But I absolutely do believe that influencers will found towns because that's what they do. They're basically community leaders and they'll become like the mayor of accl- by acclamation of that town because everybody knows and respects them, right? Now, not every kind of influencer is respected, of course, you know, but there's a certain kind of influencer who is not just like, you know, a memer or whatever, but has at least some degree of thoughts or some degree of leadership, right? You have to figure that out on a per community basis. Yeah, well, one, one more piece of pushback before I guess moving to the next topic. So when I think about, right, like one people, people have like, right, multiple identities. And so people aren't just CrossFitters or people aren't just, I don't know what other things people do, like, right, restaurateurs or runners. People tend to have a, a, a variety of identities that they, in particular social circumstance, they might sort of express as one identity versus express as other. I mean, people, for example, go to right, a pride parade and act in very different ways than they might go to every day at the office. And they act in different ways than they might go to right? Like when they go out to drink with friends or when they go home to see their family. Sure. And right, like everybody has different sets of identities that kind of express themselves at different times within different sets of relationships. And so to me, the advantage of a city is that you can, it allows for this multitude of identities. When you think of kind of the small town oppression, right? The little boy, like, or not the little boy, but like the young guy escapes a small town. It's almost always about this, right? Like yearning for something else, yearning to like express yourself, to be free. You don't want to be like held down by these seemingly oppressive social norms of the small town. And so if we're thinking about, right, like, I guess, a new set of intentional communities that allow people to, right, I guess, have these particular identities, to me, it has to be something of an all-encompassing identity. And it can't be this, right, like being, I guess, a CrossFitter or something that, that we see as like a partial identity. It really has to be like relatively whole and sufficient to justify, right, I guess, like substantial, not necessarily total immersion, but at least substantial immersion within this particular, like, fixed environment, physical environment? Well, so the ones that I mentioned, like vegans or CrossFitters, are those that make substantial daily demands on people's time, right? Chinese speaker, like a vegan, for example, that is a lifestyle, right? Every single meal you're thinking about it, 
It affects your food preparation, it affects your purchases, it affects who you can socialize with. It often comes from a place of like deeply held values, you know, maybe sometimes it's nutritional, but often it's like a values thing, like don't eat meat or, or religious things or both. Same with CrossFitters, actually, like they're really into it and it's a daily thing. They're doing it every day. And it's something where just for example, if you have a CrossFit town, you're going to have the gym nearer to the office and, you know, people will work out every single day. And there'll be peer pressure to work out in a good way, right? So I think your point on identity is interesting and important. I actually mentioned something similar. I've been thinking about this a lot. I was trying to think, why are there some people who get so offended when, you know, you point out the issues with San Francisco or New York, right? And I realized, oh, some people are nationalistic about their countries. Some people are nationalistic about their cities, others about their companies, and still others about their cryptocurrencies. Okay. And once you kind of see it like that, you're like, like, oh, okay. There's people who love San Francisco and, you know, the the tech company they work at is just a job. I'm like, that's completely the opposite of how I think about it. Like in the sense of I'm looking at this stuff as, you know, the thing that I care about most science, technology, mathematics, you know, building the future. And the city is very much a parameter, right? Like, you know, I need an internet connection, I need a desk. I need some quiet, you know, okay, it's great. Like the outdoors is great. You know, go, is there a place for a run? Wonderful. And otherwise it's basically parameterized, right? Like the unique aspects of the terrain just don't matter as much. I mean, it's fine, right? But I never identify myself as a San Franciscan, you know, but there are people who do. And then, so thus, when you criticize it, it's like criticizing the top level stack in their identity. Then of course you can have a different top level stack. I'm an American. That's the thing you're most proud of, right? Or there's a crypto stack. I'm a Bitcoiner. And that's number one, right? So I think what's interesting about this is if you ask somebody for their identity stack, that tells you a lot about them because the thing at the top is a non-negotiable and the things below that are negotiable. And I think this is a big values clash, right? That's often unarticulated. And it's, it's not just identity politics, it's identity stack, right? And so then going to your question, those people who put CrossFitter or vegan at the top of their identity stack as a thing that I identify with, literally that they put in their bio, you know, the limited space on Twitter, right? Those are the folks who would be the community leaders in such a community, right? There's other people who might come where it's a number two or number three item in their identity stack, but probably not those who for it's just a number five item. Does that make sense? Yeah. Even if, by the way, those folks for it's a number four or five item might visit the community sometimes online. So I, it's, it's kind of funny. I read a bunch of questions before this conversation, and now I'm just have ignored most of the questions. But <laughs> let, let me ignore another one because I, I had another thought. So right when talking to you, to a certain extent, you're like it's not really like the the anti Tyler Cowen, but like some antithesis of it. Okay. Tyler's entire thesis is, I and mean, this isn't just Tyler, right? It's also kind of Pierre Thiel, where he always focuses like we were promised flying cars, we got 140 characters, right? This heavy focus on innovation in the the physical world. Right? We've innovated a lot in bytes, and we're not really innovating atoms anymore. And while I'm sure you have opinions on kind of innovating in atoms, at least most of your right, like discussion, most of your focus is really on innovating in bytes. But it's innovating in bytes in order to innovate in atoms. Okay, well, let me, I guess, finish this thought, and then you speak. Because, right, like, Tyler, he's not really standing, like, authority and telling, stop innovating in bytes, but he's really telling, like, start innovating in atoms. And you seem to be standing with history and yelling, right, like, much faster in bytes 
but I guess you have this like argument that I don't, I guess, fully comprehend at this point of how this gets around to atoms. So explain that as circularity. Once you can build a startup town and a startup city, eventually you can build a startup country that isn't harmonized. Harmonization is a word that you know everybody should know. Basically, it refers to a country adopting the U.S. government's regulatory policy, essentially outsourcing its regulation, right? So a small country, you know, Slovakia, say, may decide, often decides, hey, we're going to outsource our aviation policy to the FAA and our monetary policy, we're going to copy the Fed and our biotech policy, we're going to copy the FDA and so on and so forth, right? And you will essentially hear often people refer to the Slovakian FDA or the, the Chinese SEC or something like that, right? And what that does, by the way, is it, it steals a ton of bases because it presumes that the American form is the correct form, right? That there should be such an agency, that that is how things should be done, number one. And then number two, it's just like a variation of that regulator that exists in that country. But in point of fact, what often happens is a group of people in D.C. who are generally anonymous, not elected, can't be fired. They're the tenured employees of the FDA or the SEC or, or FAA or what have you. And they're tenured because, you know, you get career tenure after a few years in the federal government if you, as long as you don't do anything crazy. And so not elected, can't be fired, anonymous, not usually covered in the press, and yet write the rules for the U.S. and the whole world by extension via harmonization, right? This is what I mean by like the American empire. So for a country to be truly sovereign, they need to throw off harmonization and be able to take a different course, it's hard to say that the US FDA covered itself in glory with its policy on COVID testing, for example, which basically held up COVID tests during the critical month of February. In fact, that's like a that's a calamitous disaster for them on par with thalidomide. You know, it's something that led to like a, a containable thing being turned into a pandemic because the tests tests weren't improved fast enough. So these agencies, I think the only way around them is to get a social consensus in a large enough territory to go a different route and say, you know, and by the way, this exists to some extent already. You can get stem cells treatments in Germany that you can't in the U.S., right? You can get surgeries overseas that are cheaper or more advanced than you can in the U.S., right? So it does exist to some extent. And it's medical tourism, not just for price, but for procedures. But I think we can push this much, much, much farther. And we can use these startup cities, you know, yeah, it starts with vegan and CrossFitter towns and so on, but eventually we get self-driving car zones, right? We get stem cell zones. We get zones that can do all kinds of things in the physical world because the limitations on what we can do in the physical world correspond to the alignment of the people in those zones to say this is worth doing, right? The risk is worth the reward. We're trying to push forward the future. And after 1969, the U.S. basically lost that. You know, it just lost the ability to, you know, push and innovate. And look, that's fine. You know, it's a relay race in history. Not every country, this is, is well, it's a great country. It'll be in the history books, what it was, but you don't have to take it all the way to infinity. And, you know, the Greeks didn't, the Spaniards didn't, the British didn't, the Romans didn't, the Chinese didn't, you know, Indians didn't. Everybody had a role to play and they popped up later on in the story, you know, and it returned. So I think getting back physical innovation is going to mean doubling and tripling down on digital to simulate everything digitally, to build a community digitally, and then hit enter, materialize the physical world, and then restart history. Okay, that's interesting. So let me, I guess, break that down, because to me, I'm like sympathetic 
to certain parts of that, but I guess I haven't like fully bought in. So what I see as there's, I guess, several, right? One is why has physical innovation slowed? And one of the arguments is regulatory. The other is that there were like low hanging fruit. So some innovation was just easier than others. And now we're kind of reaching hopefully another stage of easy easiness. The critical piece is we need to tolerate a period of anarchy. And let me explain what I mean by that. Okay. So for a while, and still today, there's a problem of spam on the internet, but in the early 2000s, it was really bad. And there were lots and lots and lots of different models that were proposed to control this. But eventually the one, you know, for example, vigilantism going after the spammers or charging fees or so on and so forth. But eventually what turned out to work was Bayesian spam filtering, which was a decentralized version. And that got spam mostly under control and Gmail implemented that. You know, I think we'll get a second cut on it with crypto, but it, you know, messaging has also helped because most of the people who can message you, they're, you know, it's not it's not publicly known, so they can't you know scrape your inbox or, or scrape your phone number and get your your messaging inbox. A second example is something where the tolerating a period of anarchy was actually you know the right thing to do, arguably. So I would I think phrase it a little bit differently, right? Like. What you need is to allow for a early degree of high uncertainty to allow an iterative process that can rapidly improve. Yeah. And so, for example, if you had looked at the first airplanes and it's like, this shit is crazy. Like, who would ever get in one? And they had, like, relatively high death rates. But you had to accept that, oh, wait, like, flying is pretty cool. So if people want to choose to get in an airplane or to test this out, that is their decision. And this was, I mean, it wasn't even a quick iterative process, right? It took decades for it to really fully play out. But well, aviation is pretty fast, I think, for the Wright brothers to like jet aircraft was a generation. Yeah, yeah, but I mean that's decades. It, I mean, it depends on like how, how you're defining fast, right? Like it wasn't instant. It wasn't like all right, like three years later, this is like 100 percent safe. No, it took decades for it to build up that level of safety, that level of right, like productive capacity to ensure that all those screws are tightened right, that had everything there. And so you you need to tolerate this period of initial uncertainty, initial risk to allow for this iterative process that will work. I'm not sure it will work in all cases, but it will work in most cases. And that is, I think, necessary for the emergence of a lot of t- new technologies. And our, our risk profile has just gotten so right, like conservative that we're not willing to tolerate this initial piece of uncertainty. Well, so, so what's happened is you get so risk-averse. Risk-aversion is the greatest risk, or rather excessive risk-aversion is the greatest risk. For example, if you know the fact that the FDA went and stopped Apple from putting diagnostics into its Apple Watch, you know, many years ago in 2015, uh, meant that the Apple Watch wasn't as featureful, and it meant that it couldn't scale to tens of millions of units, and it meant that by 2020, you didn't have distributed diagnostics that could have diagnosed COVID without, you know, like requiring a, a test send out, right? Well, let me let me just state this even stronger than you're stating it. I'm not sure people realize how like fully horrifying this is because wearables basically allow you to detect COVID outbreaks. Yes. like two to three days before everything else happens. Yep. And so if we had allowed for, right, like basically diagnostic wearables now, even if we had an incompetent government, we, we could still have had a semi-competent response just because, right, like you just set a program where it's like, okay, if 5% of the population is seeing a, like, I don't know, one degree increase in their temperature, I mean, I have no idea what the metric is, but it's easily detectable. You can see the outbreaks and and you can just send out mass text messages like everybody stay home the next week and cut it down pretty quickly. Absolutely. And I think that basically that's just like one dimension of it, but it's an important dimension that shows, you know, people talk about the risk premium in finance. You know, you pay a premium for risk. This is the risk averse premium, right? The premium we're paying for not taking enough risk. 
and or not taking calculated risks along the way. Then you just pay all of your risk in one big lump sum. It's what you know Bezos talks about. He's like, you know, anytime you're doing a bet the company bet, you haven't made enough failures along the way. You know, you need to actually take those individual calculated risks because if you don't and you're too conservative, and you're especially if you're too conservative on status, right? I made this point the other day. More people are willing to take capital risk than a reputational risk. Reputational risk, lots of people are like, oof, you know, oh, you know, they, they're too occupied with what people think of them at cocktail parties or something like that. And actually, that's not necessarily doing the right thing. That's just doing the popular thing, you know? I'd say something else, which is in addition to the risk-averse premium and things like that, the key thing with all of these is you need a zone that people can opt into where they can be test pilots, right? They Like if you're in a self-driving car zone and you've chosen to enter that self-driving car zone for a live fire test of self-driving cars, right? You have chosen to live in the future and take some risk. And here's the thing. We allow bungee jumping. We allow skydiving. We allow joining the military and getting shot at in the Middle East or whatever, right? There's many life. We, suicide is actually legal, you know? I mean, not that you could really punish somebody after they kill themselves, right? But euthanasia is legal, right? You know, we allow people to take arbitrary risks for no reason or for enjoyment. So if that's legal, why is it not legal to take an experimental drug? Why is it not legal to, you know, go and fly an experimental plane? Why is it not legal to do something with your own body? Why don't you have sovereignty over yourself, right? You know, it, it should be your body, your choice, but for everything. And I think that that's, something which is, it's hard to argue with that really. You can give casuistic arguments. You could say, oh, somebody would cheat you or something like that. But ultimately you're talking about saying that you know better for somebody else and that you you want to control their decisions as an adult. So that concept of individual choice and volition will win the day. But what we just need to do is coordinate those individual choices. So, you know, you mentioned the Free State Project, by the way, in some of these notes. That was a good project, you know, somewhat successful, managed to get a bunch of people to move to New Hampshire, right, to try to change the government there. But it started in the, in the mid to early 2000s before the iPhone, Facebook, modern social networks. I mean, social networks, Facebook was just around then, but I remember the Free State Project, I believe it antedated that. I remember seeing that in the very early 2000s. I think Jason Storens or Steorens or something, I forget his last name, but it was a prophet, UNH, worked on them. So before the iPhone, before modern social networks, certainly before billions of people on social networks, before cryptocurrencies to align people or smart contracts to, you know, like structure their agreements before virtual reality, before many other tools. And lots of ideas pop before they're technologically ready. So the key question is, can you get people who are pragmatic and pro-liberty and filtered somehow, right? You have to screen, you need to screen. You get them together in a group and then I think you might be able to do amazing things. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show, or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast.